prophet in Jerusalem during the time of Jeremiah. We know this based on Micah chapter 1, verse 1, that tells us the kings who were reigning around the time of his prophesying. While Jeremiah was up in the northern kingdom telling them of God's judgment to come, Micah was in the southern kingdom saying the same thing to them, asking them to repent or else God's judgment would be upon them. And so we're going to skip the first five chapters of Micah, but don't worry, we will try to reference back to them in a better understanding of what's taking place in 6 and 7, and hopefully that will give us a broad view of what the entire book is. And so we'll begin in verse 1 of chapter 6. This will give us a, the first five verses will give us a little bit of a background before we get into our, our points that we have this morning, but we'll see in verse 1 to 2 that a court scene is set up. Micah speaking for God is saying, uh, speaking against the people for God is saying, God, it is your turn to speak to Israel. It is your turn to bring your indictment to them. We'll read in verse 1. Hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, you mountains, the indictment of the Lord, and the you enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has an indictment against his people, and he will contend with Israel. So we see this, this court scene set up. He's calling Israel to listen. Judgment will be upon you. And then we read further that in the, at the second half of verse 3, apparently Israel had no answer for God. Because he says, answer me. Respond, Israel. I've asked you a question. And they remain silent. And so God says, I'll answer the question. Here's what I've done. And we read in verse, verse 4, For I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. And I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. O my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised, and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him, and what happened from Shittim to Gilgal, that you may know the saving acts of your Lord. And so we see God explaining to them, hey, look, Israel, where you're at right now is because of me. You're in this land because of me. I delivered you out of Egypt, out of the slavery you were enslaved to there. The leaders that you followed out of there, the leaders that led you in praise and song, I appointed those leaders. I guided them. And then he makes reference to, to Balak, king of Moab. What happened was on their way to the promised land, Balak, king of Moab, devised a plot to try to deter them from making it there. He didn't want them to make it to the promised land, so he calls for Balaam, and he says, Balaam, I want you to go and put a curse on Israel so they do not make it to the promised land. I want you to ensure that your, your curse, they, they won't get there. And at first, Balaam says, no, I can't do that. I have no reason to do that. And Balak says to Balaam, well, here's this, and here's this, and here's this. And he begins to offer him riches and, and prosperity. And Balaam, like, like many of us, okay, I can do it. And he goes, and he, and he starts heading towards Israel, and he's, to the group of Israel, and he says to Israel, and he's about to announce a, a, a curse on them. But we read in Numbers 22 to 24 that God makes it to where every time Balaam over, opens his mouth, all he can do is, is pray a blessing upon Israel. Israel, get there. God will bless Israel. And so we see that God is in control even when Israel doesn't realize he's in control. 
And that's what he's trying to get across to them. Look, you didn't even know this was going on, but this is what I did for you, Israel. This is why you're here. And then he makes reference to Shittim and Gilgal. This was to make reference into the Jordan River, the journey across it. Shittim was the, the city on the east side of the river where they stopped and they looked and they thought, how in the world are we getting across this? Forgetting what just happened at the Red Sea. And what does God do? God, God dries it up and allows them to walk on dry ground just like he did at the Red Sea. And the first place they get to on the other side is Gilgal. And so God's saying, look, don't you remember there? You didn't know how you are going to get across. And I did it for you. And so God's, God's, before he brings any more response and before he hears anything from Israel, he says, why, why are you here? Why are you here in, in the promised land that I've given you? I call you my people. What have I done to make you tired of me and want to walk in your own ways? And they don't have an answer for him, and so he, he provides one for them. And he says, I've done everything but make you tired of me. You followed your own will, not mine. And so the three points that I think we need to see this morning are the misconceptions we have about God's promise. The misconceptions about God's promise. And then we want to see the truths of God's promise this morning in the text. And then finally, we want to see the hope of God's promise. If we look at verse 6 in chapter 6, we begin to read, Israel finally has a response to God. And they say, God, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with a calf a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams and ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Do you see what Israel's offering? It's just offering a work to God. God, what, what, I see that we've kind of gotten off on the wrong foot, God. You're angry with me. What, what do you need me to do? What, what sacrifice do I need to offer to you? And this is where we see our first misconception is, is a form of legalism. God, what can I do to, to fix this? What do you want me to do? And, and if we look at these, these offerings, they start, off, um, they start off quality. A burnt offering was a very high-quality offering because this was one that was just totally burned up for God. There was other offerings where you would burn some of it, where you would sacrifice some of it, but then you would give it to the rest of somebody else. You would partake of some of it. And so we see this, this is a high-quality offering they're offering. They're asking God if he wants. Do you want a burnt offering? Do you want a calf a year old? And then they just go into quantity. God, how much of this do you want? I can give you a thousand rivers of oil. I can give you a thousand rams. And they're saying, God, how, how much do you want, God? How much do I need to do to get you to be okay with me? And so we see a form of legalism. And we fall into this. We say, God, what good deeds do I need to do to, to be in right standing with you? What, what, what can I do that will please you? Can I, can I be in the Word every day? Can I come to church? Can I do something good for somebody? Can I donate gifts to those less fortunate? And so we fall into the misconception that my good deeds are going to be what outweigh my bad deeds, and my good deeds are what God's looking for, and he wants goodness from me, and he wants, he wants all these things. 
And we'll see in a minute how the truth that God provides is completely opposite. But before we do that, I want to look at a second misconception that we find in verse 9 through 12. The voice of the Lord cries to the city, and it is sound wisdom to fear your name. Hear the rod and of hear of the rod and of him who appointed it. Can I forget any longer the treasures of the wickedness in the house of the wicked and the scant measure that is accursed? Shall I acquit the man with wicked scales and with the bag of deceitful weights? Your rich men are full of violence. Your inhabitants speak lies, and their tongue is deceitful in their mouth. What we see here is actually just a summary of what we see in chapters 2 and 3. Chapters 2 and 3 describe what's going on in Israel, and we hear that justice is being uh, handled wrongly. Even the, in the, even the priests and the prophets, they're, they're saying, look, look, everybody, everything's great. Everything is fine as long as you provide me with some money, as long as you provide me with some food, as long as you provide me with some treasures. And, we, and in chapter 3, it's saying that if, if they're bringing these things, then we'll tell you everything's great, everything's fine. We don't hear that nowadays, do we? Sadly, we do. We, we hear it all the time. Everything's great in this world. We just need you to mail us in this amount of money. We need you to, to, to mail in this. Pay for this and God will bless you. And we get fed a, a false prosperity gospel that everything will be fine. But what we see in, in 6 through 12 is, is Israel's second misconception about God's promise. You see, that they were, he's talking to his people, and so they say, we are, we're, we're his people. God calls us his own. We are in the land he promised us. We're set. This is what God offered us. He gave it to us. We're set. And we see God asking, can I forget the wickedness you're doing? Shall I, shall I, shall I just acquit the man who's doing these things? And we're going to see in a minute that he won't, and he can't. But you see, Israel became complacent where they were. We're God's people. We're in his land. We're good. And we know this because of the way they react when he asked the question initially. God, what can we give you to make things right? They become complacent, and all, and all salvation for them is now is just making sure that they offer God enough sacrificially to where he just won't get mad anymore. God, you're overreacting. You're overreacting, God. Just tell me what I need to give you. Just tell me. And the danger of this, this complacency that we see is it leads to a form of, of liberalism. It becomes, there's no way God's going to be able to judge me. He's forgiven me. He's not going to hold me accountable to these things. He's already offered me forgiveness. And the even bigger danger is that we hear pastors nowadays telling people this. No one's going to be judged. Everyone's going to get the blessing. It doesn't matter. God's a loving God. God of the Old Testament is not God of the New Testament. The God of the Old Testament, he, he's the God that will judge you. But something happened in between, and God now just loves. That's all he cares is just love. And so we see this misconception leading to some dangers, where we become complacent and we think, God, you've got me where I need to be. I'm in your will. I'm good to go. We say things like, 
I, I prayed my prayer long ago, and I walked that aisle, and I signed that card, and I was a Christian. My Christianity was affirmed that day. And maybe for the first month or so, you were the best Christian on the planet. You did all the good things you, you thought you were supposed to do. But now, the life doesn't display what God wants. We think that what we did was enough. That we've kind of trapped God into forgiving us. God, you have to give me these blessings. I've done these things. You have to provide, provide me with salvation. And so, what these misconceptions have done for us is they've allowed us to create our own God. This is the God I want. I want the God who's going to give me the blessings but won't hold me accountable for my sin. I want the God that I can manipulate. I want the God that allows me to control salvation through what I can do for him. I want a happy God. I don't want an angry God. And you, we might think, well, how do we know these are misconceptions? I mean, Israel is in the promised land, and we do know that they messed up in the past. How do we know they're technically wrong? And well, we'll see that in our second point, the truth of God's promises. If you would, jump back up to verse 8 with me. He, this is Micah speaking to Israel. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? And so Israel's sitting there going, God, what more do you want? And God's saying, I want you. I don't want these things. I want you. I want you to reflect me. That was the purpose of the covenant in the beginning. That the nations would see me through you. I want you to reflect me. I want the justice you did, that you hand out to be, to be righteous justice. I want you to walk in loving kindness. I want you to walk with me. You've turned away from me and you've gone after a God you want. And so truth number one we see is our works will not provide the salvation we seek. See, that's what God's telling them right here. He said, you've got a misconception, Israel. You think that you just doing these things, you offering these sacrifices, I will just overlook your sin. I will just forget about it like it never happened. But you can keep on living the way you want to live. And that's what we think. As long as I'm doing more good than bad, God's not going to say anything to me. And it's a false truth, truth we believe when we believe that. Truth number one, our works will not provide the salvation we seek. Look at verse 13 through 16. Therefore I strike you with a grievous blow, making you desolate because of your sins. You shall eat but not be satisfied, and there shall be hunger within you. You shall put away but not preserve, and what you preserve I will give to the sword. Which you, which you sow, you but do not reap. You shall tread olives, but not anoint yourselves with oil. You shall tread grapes, but do not drink wine. For you have kept the statutes of Omri and all the works of the house of Ahab, 
and you have walked in their counsels, that I may make you a desolation and your inhabitants a hissing, so you shall bear the scorn of my people. Truth number two, we're all going to have to answer for our sins. We're all going to have to stand before God one day and answer to our sins, answer for our sins. Do we assume he will overlook them? I mean, if we look back at the language he uses when he's questioning Israel in, in verse 10 and 11, can I forget any longer the wickedness? Shall I acquit the man with wicked scales? Meaning, shall, shall I just pass over these guys who are, who are trying to manipulate and steal money from people? Who are offering justice in the wrong way? They're practicing it in the wrong way? Should I just overlook these? God says, no, I'm not going to. I can't. And the truth is, we will be held accountable for our sins, and God will judge, but it does fulfill His promise. You say, well, how, how, how is God judging fulfilling His promise? I thought God's promise was that He would save these people, that these would be His people. Well, if we read in Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28, we see a description of what God tells the people. In the first half, he says, if you, if you obey these laws, if you keep my commandments, you walk humbly with me, and you don't break our covenant, I'll bless you. You'll be blessed in the land. I will dwell with you. But then he gets to the second half, and he actually spends more time on this part. And he says, but if you don't follow these things, if you break our covenant, here's what's going to happen to you. And how is this showing us in Micah that he's keeping his promise? The things listed in 13 through 16 are almost word for word what he lists in Deuteronomy 28 and Leviticus 26. I'm going to make you desolate because of what you've done. I'm going to send you, I'm going to let people come and take, take you over. The land you're in, it'll be desolate as if you were never there. You'll go into slavery. You'll eat but not be satisfied. You'll never have enough. You'll always be longing for something more. You'll sow but you won't reap. I control the weather is what God's saying. You can sow as much as you want, but I'm in control. And you won't reap what you sow. All the hard work you put in, it'll be nothing. It'll be for nothing. You'll try and preserve and, and store up as much as you can just to have security. Store up as much as you want, but I'm going to let somebody come in and take it off from you. So again, all your hard work you're putting in, you're relying on yourself. You've turned away from me. I'm going to let somebody else come and take it. And you see, he says, you've kept the, the statutes of Omri and the works of the house of Ahab. These, these two kings were two kings who, who led Israel away from God. They, they went to worship other, other gods, other pagan idols. And he says, if that's what you want, okay. You've broken our covenant. Judgment will be on you. So they're held accountable for their sins. They're held accountable for their transgressions against God. Same for us. And you say, that's, that's great, but you know, how, how is this 
practically helping me? Why do you think we practice church membership here? Why do you think we enforce it? Why do you think we encourage it? Why do you think we encourage one-on-one discipleship? Why do you think we practice church discipline? It's to hold each other accountable. To say, look, what you're doing, you're claiming one thing, but your life is claiming a totally different, different thing. And so with church, when, we, when we dedicate ourselves to church membership, we, we are saying that we're going to commit to helping each other, encouraging each other, holding each other accountable for the way we live our lives. And then one-on-one discipleship. I'm going to meet one-on-one with you, and we're going to discuss where you're struggling. You're going to tell me where you're struggling. I'm going to show you where you think you're not struggling, and we're going to help each other. We're going to encourage each other. We're going to make sure that we're living the way that God wants us to live, and we're not depending on some good works to get us through. And church discipline. It's not to say, hey, we don't like you anymore. Get out. We practice church discipline because we say, look, we've, we've, we've come to you. We've, we've told you what you're doing is wrong. We've told you according to Scripture what you're doing is going against God. And we're not saying we don't love you, but we can't let you remain a part of us thinking that what you're doing is okay and that we are accepting of it. And so we hold each other accountable because we know in the end we're all going to be held accountable just as Israel is being held accountable now. Look at what Micah says in verse 1 of chapter 7. Woe is me, for I have become as when the summer fruit has been gathered and when the grapes have been gleaned. There is no cluster to eat, no first ripe fig that my soul desires. We read that and we think, you must be hungry. Because he's talking about fruit. In the midst of all this, he begins to talk about food. Why is his cry, woe to me? Woe is me. Why, why is this his cry? You say, well, because look at the judgment God's bringing. Which is true. God is about to bring some judgment on Jerusalem for what they're doing. But he's not saying, woe is me because of that. He's saying, woe is me because he's remembering chapter 5. And the vision that he sees, the, the promise that God gives. If you, if you turn to chapter 5, you'll, you'll see in verse 1, we'll read the first few verses. Now muster your troops, O daughter of, muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who was to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from the, of old, from the ancient days. Therefore he shall give up them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty in the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he, sh- he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. So why is Micah saying, woe is me, after remembering that promise? It's because of what he says in 2-6. through six. The godly has perished from the earth, and there is no one upright among mankind. 
They all lie in wait for blood, and each hunt the other with a net. Their hands are, are on what is evil, to do, what, to do it well. The prince and the judge ask for a bribe, and the great man utters the evil desire of his soul. Thus they weave it together. The best of them is like a briar, the most upright of them a thorn in a hedge. The day of your watchmen, of your punishment, has come. Now their confusion is at hand. Put no trust in a neighbor. Have no confidence in a friend. Guard the doors of your mouth from her who lies in your arms. For the son treats the father with contempt. The daughter rises against her mother. The, da- the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. The man's enemies are the men of his own house. He's saying, woe is me because God, you've promised us a deliverer. You've promised us a deliverer to deliver us from this judgment. And I'm looking around and I don't see anyone capable of doing that. There's not one person who even comes close to being what you've promised. Woe is me. Woe is me. See, Micah hears the judgment from God. He knows God's not lying. He knows God's remaining faithful to His promise and He will continue to remain faithful to His promise but he just doesn't see the deliverance yet. I don't see how you're going to get us out of this, God. I don't see how we get out of your judgment. So we see the problem. We're all going to be judged. It's inevitable. We're going to be held accountable for our sins. But there's nothing we can do to get past that judgment. There's nothing we can do to remedy the judgment God has on us and will have on us. You may be thinking, that's a really downer of a sermon, Marshall, (laughs) especially leading into Christmas. Look at verse 7, though. This is a really important verse in this passage. Micah says, But as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation my God will hear me. And so you see, in the beginning of 6, chapter 6, verses 6 and 7, we see God saying, or we see the people saying, what can I do to get that salvation, God? What do you want me to give you? What can I do? How can I control salvation? And Micah says here, salvation belongs to God. Salvation comes from God. I can't do anything to get it, but I know God's going to provide it. And so, our third truth is actually our third point for this morning. The hope of God's promise. The hope of God's promise is that He will provide salvation to those who truly repent. And we see true repentance in Micah when we read verses 8-10. through Now, he's not just speaking for himself. He's speaking for the remnant as well, those God will save. And he says, Rejoice not over me, O my enemy, when I fall. I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. I will bear the indig- listen to this verse. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him until he pleads my cause and executes judgment for me. He will bring me out of the light, out into the light. I shall look upon his vindication. Then my enemy will see, and my shame will cover her who said to me, 
Where is the Lord your God? My eyes will look upon her, and now she will be trampled down like the mire in the streets. You see, he's, he's repenting for the remnant of Israel. He's asking for, for forgiveness. And he's saying to his enemies, don't, don't rejoice when you see me fall. Don't rejoice when you come overtake me. Because you're not powerful. This isn't you. God's letting you do this to us. Don't rejoice. This is God. This is God's punishment on us. This is God's judgment on us. Why? Because we've sinned. So we're the cause of you coming in and taking us over. So don't rejoice. God will save us. God will deliver us. And not only that, He'll judge you too. He will judge you too. And so we see Micah's hope is in the salvation from God. But how do we know that, that Micah can trust in this? What, what does Micah have that he's clinging on to that God's going to do this? I mean, he knows God's fulfilling his promise in the judgment, but how does he know God's fulfilling his promise to save them? If we look at Deuteronomy 30, you don't have to turn there, I'll read it really quickly. Deuteronomy 30, the first seven verses we read, and when all these, this is God speaking about the covenant. Um, the, this is right after the curses. Here's what's going to happen if you break this covenant. He then says to the people, And when all these things come upon you, the blessings and the curses, which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you, and return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey His voice in all that I command you today, with all your heart and with all your soul, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have compassion on you. And He will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. If your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of the heaven, from there the Lord your God will gather you. And from there He will take you. And the Lord your God will bring you into a land that your fathers possessed, that you may possess it. And He will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. And the Lord your God will put all these curses on your foes and enemies who persecuted you. Micah's holding on to that promise. God's going to keep His promise in judging us and holding us accountable for what we've done. But He's going to hold His promise that He will provide a way of salvation for the remnant, those who truly repent and come back to God. And so that's where his hope is. His hope is in that. And then in chapter 4 of Micah, we, we read that there's a description of what this place will be like when God brings all the people back together to this new promised land. And in verses 11 through 13 of Micah 7, Micah kind of recount, uh, recounts that, that promise of God in chapter 4. A day for the building of your walls, and that day the boundary shall be far extended. In that day they will come to you from Assyria and the cities of Egypt, and from Egypt to the river, from sea to sea and from mountain to mountain, but the earth will be desolate because of its inhabitants for the fruits of their deeds." 
So he's saying, God, you're going to provide this for us, and it's going to be great. You're going to bring us back to you, those who've truly repented. But the rest of it, it's going to get the same judgment we got because they failed to follow you. They will become desolate now. The rest of the inhabitants of the world will become, will become desolate. But in verse 11 and 12, we get a little foreshadow of the hope that we can have. Because remember, God's talking to Jews here. So this promise is to the Jews. And so up until this point, it's, it's great for them, but what about us? We're the other nations that God's going to judge. But look, listen to the foreshadow in verse 11 and 12 again. The boundary shall be far extended. They will come to you from Assyria, the cities of Egypt, from Egypt to the river, from sea to sea, from mountain to mountain. He's making reference to the Gentile nations. It's foreshadowing that God will save more than just the Jews. And this is the beginning of the gospel for us. The promise that God will provide a way for those who truly repent. In Revelation 7, we read in verse 9 and 10, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white cloth, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Salvation belongs to God. And we see people from all nations, all tongues, proclaiming this. But how do we know that it's extended to the Gentiles as well? Because of Jesus. Turn with me, if you will, to Matthew. Matthew chapter 2. Remember, Micah's hoping in that, in that deliverer that was mentioned in chapter 5. That's where, that's where he's trusting God to provide the salvation for the remnant. Through that deliverer that he was promised in chapter 5. And so remember that as we read Matthew 2, the first six verses. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of all the people, he, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea. For so it is written by the prophet, the prophet Micah, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who is a shepherd of my people. So we see Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the promise given in Micah 5, the one who will deliver the remnant, who will provide the deliverance for those who truly repent. So this is the gospel. This is why we can't separate Christmas and Easter. We like to think of them as two separate holidays. 
We never think about one when we think about the other. And that's wrong because at, the, at the Christ's birth, when we look at Christmas, we should look at it and think, this is God fulfilling his promise to bring about the deliverer. But then when we look at the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, we look at it and we say, this is God's fulfillment of his promise to deliver us. The deliverer did what God said he was going to do. And not only is it for the Jews, it's for everyone. It's for Jews and Gentiles, those who God calls to truly repentance. They are offered this. And so if we think back to our misconceptions, listen to what Galatians 3 says. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and, and does them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before, before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. You see, so this is extended to not only the Jews, but to the Gentiles. Those who truly repent in these group, people groups are provided this salvation from God. It's not what we can do, it's what God can do, did do, will do. And so how does this make us think about our good works, our obedience to God? These things that we do that we tend to think are what are going to make us right before God. How, how, do we, how do we handle these? Does this mean we don't necessarily have to do them? They don't provide the salvation, so why do them? I think Timothy Keller puts it best when he defines obedience in this way. Obedience is my way of saying thank you to God. My way of becoming like God, but not my earning my way into God. So you see, these things, these good works, are what we do in response to the deliverance we've been offered. And so when we think of Christ's birth, we should look forward to the resurrection and think that's when we were offered, that's when the fulfillment of the deliverance was provided. That's when it was finished. And then we look, we use that as a sign of hope for our future hope of the resurrection of us. When Christ will come back, the dead will be resurrected, and he will judge those who did not turn back to God. And those who, in obedience, did what they were called to do out of a response to the deliverance will spend eternity with God. They will not, God will not see your sin. He'll see Christ's sacrifice if you've truly trusted in Him. If you've truly repented and turned from your ways and are trying to walk humbly with God. Friends, if you're here this morning and, and you've never heard the gospel before, I encourage you, find me after the service and I'll be more than happy to talk to you about it more and answer any questions you might have. But, but know today that the payment for the sin has been, has been paid. The debt's been paid. 
by Christ Jesus. And if you're not a follower of him, if you're not in Christ, you still owe that debt. Before we close, let's look at what Micah does in chapter 7, verse 14. Shepherd your people with your staff, the flock of your inheritance who dwell alone in the forest in the midst of the garden land. Let them graze in Bashan and Gilead as in the days of old, as when the days when you came out of the land of Egypt. I will show them marvelous things. The nations shall see and be ashamed of all their might, and they shall lay their hands on their mouths, their ears shall be deaf. They shall lick the dust like, the, like a serpent, like the crawling things of the earth. They shall come trembling out of their strongholds. They shall turn in dread to the Lord our God, and they shall be in fear of you. Micah doesn't see the remnant, or doesn't see the deliverer. He can't see him, but he knows he's going to be there one day. He knows God will provide him. And so what does Micah do? He prays to God for the remnant. He prays, God, shepherd them. Protect them. Let them graze in Bashad and Gilead. These are two places where symbolizing peace with God. Where they were in the beginning of the land when they were at peace. He said, bring them back to that. This has shown us the importance of prayer. Not for ourselves, though. How we do corporate prayer. How we view the pastoral prayer. In those, we pray for other believers. In those, we pray for the future of the church. And not necessarily just Park Hills Baptist Church, but we're praying for the church as a whole. We're praying for missionaries in other countries. We're praying for other churches in Austin. God, be with them. Protect them. Guide them. Are we doing that? Can you say you're doing that? Are you praying for the future of the church? Or are we so focused on us right now that as long as it's okay right now, when I'm dead and gone, it's up to them to make it right? Are we praying for the future of the church? Are we praying for God's guidance for the future of the church? This morning, it's, it's my prayer that as we've looked at God's promise and the misconceptions we have about God's promise at times and then the truth of God's promise and then ultimately the hope that we have in Christ and the fulfillment of God's promise that we'll walk away with a better understanding of what it is, with an idea of how to fix our misconceptions, a desire to fix our misconceptions, and to trust in the hope through Christ of salvation. That one day we can look to God, look at our situation, and no matter how bad it is or how good it is or where we're at, we can look at our situation knowing God has delivered us to this situation, that God has provi provided an ultimate deliverance from sin through Christ. And we can praise God with the words that Micah uses to close his book, verses 18 through 20. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever, because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast our sins into the depths of the sea. 
you will show faithfulness to Jacob and a steadfast love to Abram as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. Let this be our praise to God this morning, knowing that he has provided us salvation through Christ for those of us who have truly repented and trusted in Christ. Let's pray. Father, I am humbled that you have provided me with an opportunity to be up here this morning. To teach your word this morning, God. I pray that I did it it justice. That I followed your will. I pray that as we reflect on your promise, God, that we are excited. That you have provided salvation for us through your son on the cross and through his resurrection. I pray for the misconceptions that we have at times when it comes to your promise. I pray that you would fix those in our lives, that you would enlighten us on how they are wrong and reveal to us your truth through your word, God. And again, we do praise you for who you are and what you've done in our lives and how salvation belongs to you. And we can say, who is a God like you? Pardoning our iniquity and passing over our transgression. In Christ's name, amen. Join join with us in singing this. Jesus, born to set thy people free from our fears and sins. Release us, let us find our rest in thee. Israel's strength and consolation, hope of all the 